Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Continue our exposition this morning, covering verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's go before the Lord in prayer once again before we look at this glorious text. Lord God, we ask now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll minister to our souls, enable me the ability to communicate your truth, and bless your people with these words. Sanctify us by way of this truth, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. 1 Corinthians is all about the gospel permeating every aspect of the body of Christ so that the life of the church will permeate culture, not culture permeating the truth, that is, the church. I want you to contrast verse 13. Listen to this. Faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Contrast that with 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Verse 24, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life. Eternal life. Because of the permanence of agape love, according to his gospel. That God demands absolute perfection from his creatures. Um, we are fallen in Adam, and out of his love, he sent his son to do what is impossible for us to do, and that is to hold up his law righteously and perfectly. 
and then to bear God's wrath against sin and sinners on the cross, dying in our place, all of our sins laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his resurrection, we are justified, declared free from all blame, where all of the righteousness of Christ is applied to our account, the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes this epistle in order to redirect the Corinthians under the power of the gospel. Stuck as they were in patterns of thinking and living um, characterized by pre-conversion life. I mean, all of their issues need a gospel overhaul, a, a thorough penetration of the gospel to all areas of life. Now, Paul has addressed thus far um, factionalism within that church, according to favoritism, division according to social status, their relaxed tolerance for sexual immorality that was going on within the church, um, their you know, taking one another to court, their disorderly worship, their idolatry, all of it, all of it needs to be transformed by the gospel. Along with their prideful self-promotion of spiritual gifts. That he covers in chapters 12, 13, and 14. In chapter 12, Paul instructs the Corinthians and us concerning spiritual gifts that these gifts are given for edification, for the purpose of building up one another, that is within the body of Christ. He says in chapter 12 and verse 31, regarding um, greater gifts, he says, I show you a still more excellent way. That is, everything that we do is to be regulated by that more excellent way. That is the perfect rule of love. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Hey, that is the love of the will, the love of choice. Romans 10 and verse 13 tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. And if love covers a multitude of sins, according to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, the fact that love bears all things, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7, well, that tells us that a lack of love within the church of Jesus Christ, causes a multitude of sins. And that is precisely what was going on within the church of Corinth. Now, in verses 1 through 3, we looked at the necessity of love, the fact that love matters because without it, nothing else does, verse 2. And then in verses 4 through 7, we studied the character of love, that is, 15 characteristics of what love does and refuses to do. That, that, that portrait of love 
that we looked at last Lord's Day. That portrait of love matters because it makes us like Jesus, who is the original. And then finally this morning, love matters because love lasts forever. Love lasts forever. Now in verses 8 through 13, we're shown the permanence of love. The never-ending existence of active agape. Divine love that saved us. The love that sought us out, the love that called us, the love that transformed us, the love that sanctified us, the love that continues to work in our lives. God's active, aggressive, unmerited love that causes us to love God in return as well as one another, the body of Christ, his church. Now, the structure of his instruction here, in verse 8, notice, love never fails. And then, in, in the, the second part of verse 8 through, through verse 12, he demonstrates the love that never fails by showing that spiritual gifts will end compared to love that will not will never end. So in verse 13, he will conclude with the abiding presence of faith, hope, and love, with love being the greatest. That's where we're headed this morning. Um, and he begins here by drawing a contrast between uh, the, the temporary and partial nature of spiritual gifts with the permanent and perfect nature of love. Now, the Corinthians, as you well know, were infatuated with spiritual gifts, especially um, speaking with tongues. Even those who did not have the actual gift, that is a foreign language, never learned, longing for attention, many of them made up their own imitation of tongues with ecstatic gibberish, that is glossolalia, a subject that Paul spends a lot of ink on, especially in chapter 14, and we'll get to that next time. And It's just simply the same nonsense that is practiced in some churches to this day, ecstatic gibberish. Now Paul here begins with a powerful summary statement. Verse 8, love never fails. Literally, it never falls to the ground never collapses, it, it never suffers ruin. Now, love, as you know, may be met with indifference. Love may be met with opposition or, or flat out be rejected. After all, Jesus, who is love incarnate, was, direct, was rejected by those who were expecting him. Israel. But love transcends rejection, it, trans it transcends um, opposition, it endures indifference and disappointments. Unlike spiritual gifts. Love. Now, life in Christ is 
an eternal expression of God's love for us. Look at 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That is God who is eternal. And love, or life rather, in Christ is an eternal expression of God's love. Love never ends, never fails. Romans 8, verse 35, look at it. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, COVID-19, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Life in Christ is an eternal expression of God's love. Love never fails. So he contrasts the permanence of love, which originates with God, with impermanent gifts. Notice, with prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. Now, by the way, knowledge here, this, this is not a, a, a word of knowledge. This is not a word of knowledge. Um, technically, he's only referring to two gifts here, prophecy and tongues. Knowledge, that is in connection with prophecy. And he says both will be done away with. They will pass away, prophecy and and knowledge. Now, Paul's point is is simply that while these spiritual gifts are of a a limited duration, love will endure forever. That's his argument. Notice in verse 8, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Prophecy, what's that? Well, this is the same gift mentioned in chapter 12, verse 10 and 28. It was a revelatory gift. A prophet was the channel of divine revelation. This is not the gift of preaching, as as some say. Some do interpret this as, as the preaching of the word of God to this day. But, but a teacher, a preacher, is not the channel of divine revelation. A preacher is an expositor of the deposit that has already been given. That is declaring truth already revealed. That's, that's what I'm doing this morning. But a prophet spoke directly to the people of God with the word of God. Now that's clear throughout the Old Testament. Prophets in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament scriptures were indeed foundational to the New Testament church, but they were not enough because a great change had taken place. So early on in the New Testament church, the gift of prophecy existed to declare the infallible truth of God. 
There was no longer a one covenant nation within certain geographical boundaries. But a new covenant people that is a worldwide church made up of both Jew and Gentile. It was not, it's no longer based upon birth and ethnic descent, but upon faith in Jesus Christ, where the two men, Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2, become one man. So new revelation was needed. Prophets were given to interpret Christ coming into the world and all the implications of his redemption and the extension of his kingdom within the world through the voice of the prophet. In other words, it was New Testament doctrine before the New Testament was penned. New Testament books, um, they did not begin to circulate until the late 40s and 50s. So answers to questions like, you know, circumcision, um, the sign of the covenant, does it continue or is it has, has it been fulfilled? So prophecy was a gift, here we read, that will be done away. Prophecy will be done away, which means to abolish. It will come to an end. It will be inactivated. While love is essential, this temporary gift will be done away with. Knowledge also. Knowledge will be done away. Knowledge is to understand and apply divine revelation. It will be abolished. We will no longer need prophetic utterances. We will no longer need the knowledge that prophets provide. Love, however, never fails. Love never falls to the ground, but will always keep its place as essential to the life and the power of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophecy and knowledge will be done away. Notice verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Now, prophecy was given in parts. No prophet was given all the truth. It was given progressively. Parts. We know in part. We prophesy in part. Verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial, the parts, will be done away. They'll pass away. Now, those things to be done away are the things in verse 8, the partial, prophecy and knowledge. So what then is the perfect? And when is it coming? That's the question. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, let me say this. This section is a debatable and exegetically significant text and amongst theologians, there is a dispute um, over the meaning of perfect. One view is that the perfect is the second coming of Christ, but it has been pointed out, as many of you know, uh, perfect is in the neuter, which eliminates the possibility of a person, i.e., Jesus and his second coming. Another view is that the perfect refers to the um, eternal state, that is the consummation of all things, new heaven, new earth, the perfect. Another view is simply the believer's entrance into the presence of 
the Lord. And yet, another view is that the perfect is the completion of the New Testament. Completion of the New Testament. So I, I will begin with the view of the closing of the canon, the completion of the canon, and then I'll refer briefly to the eternal state, and then finally the believer's entrance into the presence of the Lord. So the perfect. Perfect is the word teleon. It refers to complete, mature, something that's reached um, its appointed end. It's the meaning of the word. Perfection. That is, it lacks nothing necessary for its completion. And again, it's used in reference to that which is in part, prophecy, knowledge. So it would be interpreted as the perfect, which is the completion of the partial. Revelation, the revelation of God in completed form. The, the partial, the, the parts of prophecy that provide knowledge by way of the mouth of the prophet, okay, partial revelation, when the perfect comes... That is, divine revelation in its completed form, the perfect. I mean, Jesus did promise the revelatory work of the Holy Spirit in the church. In John 14, he told his disciples that that would happen after Pentecost. In John 16, look at it, John 16 and verse 12, Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. In other words, you can't handle it yet. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into, notice, all the truth. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. That is all the truth, this body of truth, the perfect Now, Jesus sent forth his prophets who gave God's truth in parts in between the time of the promise that he gave there in John 16 and the finished writings of the New Testament. And the apostles, of course, penned the inspired words of Scripture, the New Testament. So the, the perfect is believed by some to be the completed canon, that is, canon means rule of authority, measuring rod, the canon, that the consummation of the promise of Jesus to his disciples, all the truth. I will disclose it. He, the Holy Spirit, will disclose it to you. And then the canon, the New Testament, closed by the turn of the first century. So that this body of truth promised by God to, to fulfill and to augment the Old Testament scriptures, this gift of prophecy was necessary until that time. It has since been abolished, done away. Needless to say, there's no need for prophets today, regardless of what they may claim. 2 Timothy 3 now listen to this. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. His word is profitable, we read, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every 
good work. So Paul now goes on to illustrate how a partial, imperfect knowledge gives way to superior knowledge. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. I, I did away me indicates a process. Children, for instance, use um, limited vocabulary. They think and reason in elementary terms. That's what children do. So the argument goes, the need for prophecy decreased as the New Testament scriptures were produced and before they were circulated. The gifts just mentioned, prophecy, knowledge, will pass away even as our childhood did once the canon is completed. Another, another illustration, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. We see in a mirror dimly. Dimly, we get our word um, enigma, enigma from this, something that's obscure. If you have the NASB, you'll see a footnote. Um, it refers to it as, as a riddle. Now, Corinth, so you know, it's important, uh, was famous as a producer of the finest bronze mirrors of antiquity. And nevertheless, the reflection, as good as it was, was not as perfect as when you look someone in the face. So this view, the perfect being the close of the canon, takes the term prophecy in a narrow sense, referring to direct inspired revelation, rather than preaching. And if context here is pre-canon, I mean, this is where they were in history. Parts of prophecy, not all put together yet, but then when it is put together, face to face, I will know. I will know then, face to face, at the coming of the perfect. Until then, the argument goes, there was a need for prophecy. Uh, and it, quite frankly, the church does not need um, anyone declaring parts of truth since we've received the whole. No longer knowing in part, but knowing fully. That's the view of the perfect, meaning the close of the canon. Now, these following views um, typically interpret prophecy um, as preaching and the knowledge that preaching instills, okay? So another view is the eternal state. The perfect means the eternal state. David Garland, for instance, writes, and I quote, the perfect is shorthand for the consummation of all things. That's a statement of the already not yet knowledge of God's truth. The already not yet knowledge of God's truth. 
Now, there are, are in different contexts within the New Testament, um, Greek words relating to, to teleon, um, um, telos and teleo. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 20. So Garland argues that when we become grown up and fully mature, that is in resurrected bodies, we will know fully God's revelation. New heaven, new earth, face to face with God. Now, the most popular view is of the perfect is when God's people enter into the presence of the Lord, when they enter into the perfect. At that point, there will be no need for the gift of knowledge through the prophetic voice of preaching. I mean, after all, what, what need is there to declare the truth of a subject when you're part of the subject itself, the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no need to shed light on a particular doctrine when you're standing in the light itself into the perfect, we will know fully. Now, to, to know fully, um, Paul is not saying, he does not mean that Christians will be omniscient. You'll never be omniscient because you remain finite, always in the pres presence of the infinite Lord. He simply means that we will know, and this is according to G.K. Beale, we will know a fuller measure of revelatory truth than we had formerly known, end quote. And again, because God is infinite, we will remain finite. So here on earth, our knowledge of God, the, no the knowledge we have of ourselves and of the world, it's real, it's true, but it is incomplete and imperfect. But one day, we will not have to deal with reflections, but face-to-face -face intimacy with our Lord. And what we have here is rich, it's, it's sweet, it's a wonderful gift of God, having his word, having a spirit of understanding, eyes that see, hearts that believe, but yet it's temporary, it's partial, is the argument. So while prophecy and knowledge will be done away, when the perfect comes, I want you to notice, prophecy and knowledge, they will be done away when the perfect comes, but there's a different term used here with regard to tongues. Notice, tongues they will cease. Okay, knowledge, prophecy, done away when the perfect comes. But tongues will just cease. In other words, they have built in them an internal kill switch. They're going to die out. One Greek scholar, David B. Wallace, translates it, they will cease on their own accord, they will simply die out. Tongues. They're going to stop by themselves. So from Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when um, tongues of, of fire fall upon God's people, eventually will wear out like a battery. Tongues. Well, the question is, when, when did they wear out? Well, tongues, if you know your Bible, disappears from the biblical record 
during the time of the apostles. Disappears. Tongues is mentioned 22 times in 1 Corinthians. It's never mentioned in any of the other New Testament epistles. It's never addressed to other churches. I mean, it's not even mentioned in 2 Corinthians, this problem of tongues within the church. So, uh, you know, perhaps the problem was corrected by the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. It's not mentioned in the spiritual gifts listed in Romans chapter 12. We know that it was an inferior gift, prophecy being a better gift. We'll see that when we get to chapter 14. But remember, tongues was a sign gift, a sign gift along with healings and miracles. Remember, they were signs, miracles, and wonders, a sign gift, meaning they pointed to something greater than themselves. And that was to confirm the authority and the doctrine of Jesus Christ through his apostles, a sign gift. We'll see in chapter 14, tongues was also a sign of judgment upon Israel, prophesied 700 plus years before in Isaiah 28, for rejecting their Messiah with full knowledge of the truth. Sealed in their unbelief, signs, a sign gift was tongues. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? Notice, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The, the word confirmed there is in the past tense. Implying signs, miracles, and wonders had already ceased. before the end of the apostolic age. The book of Hebrews was written around 67 AD, before the end of the apostolic age, indicating that tongues had petered out, came to an end. Just, it just ceased, like a fierce storm that rolls into town and just peters out. Tongues will Cease. Now we go back to chap, or verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I, when I became a man, I did away with childish things, right? When, when children grow up, and adults no longer think or act like children, or at least they shouldn't. A children's first words, right? Mama, dada. They learn to speak more words, but yet they have very poor grammar. They have irrational thinking. But, but nevertheless, limited elementary speech, thinking, and reasoning are all expected with a child. And as we grow, childish imaginations gradually give way 
to maturity. So tongues, okay, tongues in a sense were part of the childhood era of the church. Childhood is important. It's necessary for the sake of development. But there comes a time when we move on to maturity. In other words, there's no longer the need for sign gifts. There's no reason for the sign gift of tongues. That is the true supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language that one had never learned. I believe that that gift ceased at the end of the apostolic age. You know, unfortunately, there are those in churches today who fail to understand Paul's teaching here, which has led to many in our day to exalt and rely on those things not even given to the church today. Friends, there are no new revelations being given today in the church of Jesus Christ, period. Such thinking undermines the authority of Scripture. There are no need for sign gifts today. The substance has arrived and has ascended. Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Now, Paul's lesson in all of this for the Corinthians is that they are focusing on the wrong things. That's the point. That's what he's getting at. They're making the mistake of valuing the partial and the temporal over that which is eternal. Eternal. In other words, look, the knowledge that you boast in Corinth is limited, and it, it, is, it, it is temporal compared to the perfect. Boasters. Remember, Paul, Paul, Paul cautioned them back in chapter 8. In verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Friends, we can know. We can know all that God has revealed to us. But he has not revealed all there is to know. As a matter of fact, the more we learn, the more we realize we We don't know. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. See, what's in view here, beloved, is the indirect nature, again, the indirect nature of what we see. I have beautiful photos of my grandchildren on my desk and at home. They're clear, they're accurate, they're in color, but they're indirect. And are nothing compared to seeing those boys face to face. We see in a mirror dimly. So now, through the word of God, I'm blessed to have, we're blessed to have, I know, 
I know through the word of God, although only in part, but then in his presence I will know fully, that is to the extent that, that, that a redeemed finite human being can know, I'll know fully. Now God knows us face to face, amen? He knows us better than we know ourselves. We were reminded of that this morning in our reading from Psalm 139. Look at it. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all. One day, we will have face-to-face, intimate, direct knowledge of the triune God. Now, we see in a mirror dimly. So the Corinthians must not boast now in their gifts. Don't boast in your gifts. They are nothing compared to what is in store for you, according to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing that you're most infatuated with, Corinthians, tongues, is going to cease on its own. So in other words, don't make more of gifts than gifts deserve just because you want to be made much of. Oh, look at him. Oh, look at her go. So then the thing you ought to prize is the virtue that never fails. Verse 13, love. Love. Okay, now, the words but now introduce Paul's conclusion. Okay, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, that is right now on earth, in this segment of time, there are three good things, faith, hope, love. In the eternal state, faith will be swallowed up by sight. Hope will be swallowed up by fulfillment. Love never ends. Now, that may be what Paul is saying here. Right? In the eternal state, faith swallowed up by sight, hope swallowed up by fulfillment. Since faith and hope are encompassed by love, love believes all things and love hopes all things. Okay? But I like what Tom Schreiner says here. Quote I slightly lean toward the notion that faith and hope continue in some fashion in the future as well. Yes, hope is realized, but hope continues to animate God's people as well as for all eternity. Faith and hope remain, but they are experienced in a new octave and in a different way. Still, love reigns supreme because the purpose of all of life is the love of God, knowing and enjoying him forever. End of quote. In other words, we will maintain a faith that has expectation of newness. 
Okay, we're in glory, we're in heaven, so we're always going to have a hope of newness that is of incomprehensible realities. Things that are incomprehensible. New galaxies, new laws of physics, new sounds, new smells, new music, and the newness of constant delight, because God is infinite. In other words, our joy will increase throughout eternity and will never reach a place of finality once again because God is infinite. We remain finite. Always learning, always growing. So we'll always have that hope. I like that. After all, 1 Corinthians 15, 16. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Okay, now back to earth. Back to earth. Faith, hope, love. The Apostle Paul puts these three together in First, or, um, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Look at it, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, that is the Thessalonians, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Okay, now faith is a gift, amen? Faith is a gift out of the love of God which produces in us hope and reciprocating love. Faith, hope, Love. So the work of faith that he refers to here is works that are produced by faith. Works produced by faith. Labors that are motivated, he says, by love. So I'm gifted by God. I have faith. I, 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 I do works produced by faith, motivated by love. And notice there's the steadfastness of hope. That is persistence instilled within us by our hope. Persistent. In other words, we use our gifts for the edification of the body. The thing that was lacking in Corinth. So the church always needs works of faith, service that, that comes from a true and living faith, rooted in a steadfast hope that, in, that is inspired by love the labor of love, gifts and service to others. Motivation, again, can't say it enough. Motivation, love. Because I'm loved by God, I have love for God, I have love for those who are also in Christ by way of the grace of God. So my gifts are not for self-aggrandizement or to, to pridefully parade oneself, which was talk about pandemics, that was the Corinthian pandemic within the church, parading themselves according to their gifts. So Paul breaks it down. Imagine if there were, you know, like the Academy Awards, um, something like, you know, church awards. <laughs> Elder of the year. Deacon of the year. Or the annual um, preacher awards. How ridiculous would that be? 
See, the, the Corinthians prized certain gifts, wanting themselves to be prized. Remember, these are the people who thought they had super faith. Hyper-spiritual, the super-faith people. Let me close with this. The Lord's apostles during his earthly ministry, look at it in Luke 17, verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed... You would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, in describing the power of faith, it would be easy for the disciples, would it not, to fall into the snare of pride. Yes, it would be. I heard you. So, leading them to keep things in proper perspective, this is something the Corinthians needed. Look at what he says in verse 7. Which of you having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded, does he? So to you, or so you too, when you do all the things that are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, Jesus is not rendering service as something that's meaningless or useless He's not doing away with rewards here. He's not encouraging anyone to be um, inconsiderate or rude. He's simply attacking unwarranted self-esteem. Spiritual pride. That's all he's doing. And to remember that, that God owes us nothing, but we owe him everything. So service that, that comes from a true and living faith, rooted in steadfast hope that is in Christ, inspires, or it ought to, a labor of love in service to others. Not boasting in one's gifts because it's all temporal. That's Paul's argument to these prideful Corinthians. So the, this famous triad sums up the entire Christian life. We live in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We, we live in hope of the future guaranteed to us by Christ's death and resurrection as we live in love, serving one another, the church, as dear brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Now, if you're like me, you'll find that there are areas that are deficient in your life with regard to love. What do you do? Cry out for help. You go to Christ. You, you cry out and ask to become more like 
Christ because he's the one who enables. So then I can serve according to my gifts for the sake of others and, and the building up of one another. That's what the gifts are for. Not to be parading myself around. And again, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all to be most pitied. So because the love of God in Christ never ends and we continue to walk by faith, motivated by love, we will not love perfectly here, amen? It is only in glory that I will fully know because I fully have been known to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, that will come in fullness, in glory. By now, we're reminded of these things as we walk by what? Faith, the hope we have motivated by love. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious passage of Scripture. We thank you for the encouragement it brings, the conviction that it brings, the hope that it instills even more deeply within our hearts. Bless these, your words, to your people. And Lord, bring to faith those who are outside the family of God by way of your sovereign grace to show them that you know them intimately as well and to give them a heart of flesh, believing in the glorious hope of the gospel through the finished work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen.